Hello and welcome to the Chasing Faith podcast. This is going to become a place for us to discuss issues of faith in a way that leads us towards a more authentic, open, honest, and generous expression of what we truly believe. Our guest on the podcast today is Reverend Dr. Violet Lee, the Executive Program Minister here at Christ Church. In addition to her role at Christ Church, she serves as an academic advisor at Columbia University and Hunter College in their social work programs, and a visiting lecturer for Union Theological Seminary. Well, it's a real pleasure to welcome the Reverend Dr. Violet Lee to this conversation. She's now been, Violet, how long have you been on the staff now at Christ Church? Four years. Four years. So this conversation is long overdue because we want to get down and know the real Dr. Lee here, don't we? And uh, for the listeners who may not know, uh, Dr. Lee is the executive program minister at Christ Church. And as she has just revealed, she's been with us for four years. It's been a really fascinating four years of transition, especially now that we've moved into COVID. And I know Brandon and I have looked forward to having this conversation. And uh, she's been a terrific colleague. And well, I think we need to learn about her, don't you? Let us, I think think we need to unpack who Violet Lee is. So maybe Violet, the thing to do, we ask all of our our guests to give a kind of a a short, uh, crisp uh, history of how, of how they tracked into how they what they're doing and how they got there and what their faith trajectory was like. So take it away. The shortened version, right? Yeah. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> As a little girl from South Carolina, a very small town up up a northeastern part of the state, I grew up two blocks from my home church. So every extracurricular activity I was involved in started with that home base. It was either at home and with family or at my church, Girl Scouts, the junior ushers, choirs, any and everything, until I got to high school. And then I became more involved in school-based activities, extracurricular activities. But it was through that process of being involved in the church and connected in so many ways and with so many different organizations, um, civic, social, religious, that I had a high regard for the church in my developmental years, years that continue. I will say to fast forward a bit, I, as so many others, went to college I wouldn't say I strayed, but maybe had a little more of a timid relationship with the church. Found somewhere in my home, uh, my town where school was, that was a home church for me. And that was upon my mother's insistence. Everywhere I've gone in life, find your home church. Connect with a good church and you'll be all right. So I've always kind of always kept a foot in the door of the church somehow, some way. And this was the Baptist church, right? This was the Baptist church. That's right. It was always Baptist. But until I arrived at seminary, well, it was in seminary prior to, I should say, in my time in Washington, D.C., after graduate school at Howard University, joining a church there that I learned to be more 
uh, open and inclusive in my understanding of my faith, religiosity. It gave me the tools and the discourse, I think, began to form theological discourse there. And that expanded my thoughts liturgically and all of that. So I found that I'd been missing out on a whole wealth of stuff that other Christians had been doing that I never had the privilege of doing and thought it kind of odd that my Baptist upbringing left something out. I guess, just to interject, I guess it's true for all of us (laughs) that we have to break out of the bubbles in which we were formed in some way, right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. And so that church... And it came in many ways, many mediums there, but one part of it was the Christ African Institute. My pastor there had received, um, he had a PhD from Union Theological Seminary that he received under James Cone. And PhD in systematics, and his wife had a doctor of ministry and pastoral care and psychotherapy. And they were just a dynamic duo. But the point is, they begin to help open all of these unlocked places and introduced even some of the liturgical pieces of, I think, Christian worship that helped me. So my faith trajectory, leaving that space and then coming to New York, the seminary with New York, I'd been at Abyssinian. um, How did you wind up in New York? How'd you wind up at Union? I wound up in those same pastors in D.C. because my pastor received his Ph.D. in in uh, um, right. systematics from Union. He drove my U-Haul truck up to New York with my stuff. And they insisted that I apply to several schools, one of them being Union Theological Seminary, one being Howard Divinity School. I got accepted into um, the four or so schools they in- encouraged me to apply to, including Union and Howard. And I thought, you know, I have a social work degree from Howard. I have a master's of social work from Howard. One degree from Howard University, I think, is enough. And I need to go and expand my horizons. So I had my black school experience. I was working as a licensed social worker in Washington, D.C. And the call just drew me in and I uprooted, came to New York. And because they thought I probably would not make it unless they brought me here, my pastor again drove the U-Haul, my pastor, my best friend. And I felt like it was some weird version of kind of a Beverly Hillbilly, Beverly Hillbilly's <laughs> kind of scene, um, kind of contemporized that version for a U-Haul truck coming to New York. And I arrived to New York for seminary in 1998. We should probably tell our listeners that Union Theological has got a rich uh, history. Uh, lots of the American uh, systematic theologians were resident there. It's up on the Upper West Side, about 120th, 122nd, and Broadway, so right by Riverside Church. Um, And that's where Violet uh, went to seminary. It's actually where my son Luke went as well. Exactly. Yeah. And that started my time in New York, and my tenure at Abyssinian began like the following month. Maybe it would be worth saying a word about, okay, so you grew up in the church, but and you have a master's of social work, well, why seminary? Why ministry? Why ordained ministry? Yep. What, hap- why, what why, happened? Why? That's the big question. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, um, right. I had a bachelor's of social work degree from Winthrop University in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Master's of social work seemed natural. It was the next logical step in my career trajectory. 
ministry threw me off my keister for a bit. I wasn't expecting to follow a call. In fact, I entered seminary with such a serious aversion to call language. I just didn't think that meant me. I felt and believed earnestly that I would go and get prepared for whatever the next step would be. Whatever God's next step was, I didn't really want to know, but I thought it would be safe. I thought it would be uh, centered around social justice, outreach, and um, also with Christian education somehow wrapped into that. Never did I anticipate working in anyone's church, serving as an ordained minister. I didn't have those models growing up as a little girl. Yeah, and that's right. Didn't have any of that. Didn't have any of those models. And so I did it. And I had a great sense of fear. I entered seminary after having told my mother, I think one month before it was time for me to leave D.C., my mother at the time still lived in South Carolina, as did my grandparents. And all I remembered was at some point, maybe around junior high school, a woman who shared her call story with the church. And I couldn't remember where my, my mother and my grandparents fell on the side of that for or against her and supporting her. But the home pastor was very supportive. So I was greatly fearful. I, I had a lot of reservations around the call. And I didn't I tell my mother. So a lot of it was gender-based. Your fear a was gender-based gender in part. Very gendered um, in understanding of leadership in the church, which is weird right. because my home Baptist church had female deacons. The, the diaconate was inclusive, the trustees. I saw that. I saw that in my church in D.C. more heavily um, than anywhere else. The pastor there succeeded his father. And if either of them were away preaching out, the whole, entire pulpit was filled with women. So I was opening up to something new, but that was never what I imagined as a little girl. It was never in my mind or a hope that I would become a minister and serve an ordained ministry in a church. So I had very safe, I think, plans entering seminary to do the necessary work behind the scenes, but never be out front. Because in, well, I, I, in a way, you were a groundbreaker, right? Still, I mean, you weren't the first, but you were certainly early in the, uh, particularly in the black church of women being ordained and accepted in, in, in leadership out front, as you said, right? It very, very much right. It was that case. And I was reminded of that at Abyssinian. I was the first woman there to serve in the churches at that time, 200 plus year history. I think it's about 212 years old now as of last month, maybe 212. First woman to serve as assistant pastor. And by default, because I'd been there for so long, my tenure allowed me the opportunity to traverse some of those paths other women before me never had the opportunity. So not right. only was I the first woman to serve as assistant pastor, I was the first woman to uh, serve Holy Communion there and the first woman to baptize in that pool. So I was the first woman to preside over the ordinances, which was a shocker in that church on many levels. And I didn't think that would come in my tenure, but I'm grateful. It was very difficult in some moments to process it all because of what the community's experience was to that. It was very did, different did from you my get, vantage point. Did you get pushback from the congregation? 
I didn't get a lot. But what happened, you have to understand, again, this all being very gendered and knowing the Black Baptist Church not always being very woman-friendly um, and very having few allies in ministry and often in spaces in the Black Baptist Church can be very, very hostile at times. They love you, want to assist you and support you in your call and advancing in ministry uh, toward heeding the call of God, but they don't necessarily understand what that means for you to serve as pastor. So those specific rituals and, you know, those rites become saturated with so much emotion. I remember leaving out of the church the first day I did a, I, I did baptism. I presided over uh, the ordinance of baptism and let's see, communion first. It was May of that year and then baptism in July. And I remember a 96 year old lady from Cairo, Georgia, leaving out of the church. And when she descended onto the, the, the sidewalk there, right at the gates, exiting and entering Abyssinian, she's like, oh my goodness. She was shouting out in, in the, on the sidewalk in the streets, if you will, with such, she was in her excitement, enthusiasm. She wanted to share with me how she was so thankful to God that she lived to see the day. You know, in her lifetime that God would show up in this way. And it was so, again, it was yeah. so emotional that, again, my process, it took a back seat to the community's process. So, right. again, right. thankful that at least in D.C. I had some women models beginning to emerge for me. And my pastors there, the senior, uh, the pastor was assisted by his wife, his 19 year ministry there. She'd been serving as assistant pastor for 18 years. Of the 19 years. So I had some female um, models beginning to form for me what ministry could look like. And so you that know, was helpful. Yeah. You know, it's interesting when, um, so the Methodist church had has been ordaining women for a longer period of time, but even so um, church, it took, it still takes churches a while to absorb uh, having a woman in the main, in the main role. Um, to this day, that still happens, although it's much less than it was when I first started. Mm -hmm. um, but the other thing I observed was that <clears throat> actually even going into seminary, that there was a tremendous amount of talent flooding into the seminary about the time I was among women. Um, interesting. And the, the times have now moved forward. Brandon, I'm kind of wondering in your background, no female pastors as such, right? Is that right? Well, that's, you know, that's kind of like one of the strange things about my, my upbringing is I kind of come from churches similar to Christ Church, like when I was really uh, young, right. my dad served in, you know, kind of a more progressive Baptist church. And one of the minister who actually led me to Christ was a female minister. Oh. Um, but it was later on in college and the time after that, where I was in churches where, you know, women would never be called pastor where they would never be allowed to preach in the pulpit, all things of which I, you know, disagreed with at the time and even was vocal about and almost lost my job over several times. For um, the sake of our listeners, what was the theology behind that? Um, well, a lot of it comes out of like reformed theology um, and just thinking that the complementarity of men and women, that they complement each other, they're not equal. They're, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's ultimately, that's, that's, that, that's, that's the hard put version of it. Yeah. The worker bees compliment the, 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 right. the, you know, the head bees or whatever. Right. 
that women yeah. are meant to complement the the male head right and the you know i i don't ascribe to that obviously there's a there's a great intermixing here isn't there both theologically as well as culturally yeah. um and how different cultures have expectations around who men and women should be and mm. who pastors should be you know the ideal pastor um, historically, as I recall it, coming into the ministry as a young man, well, I actually had the perfect makeup. That is, I was a white man married to a white woman who had an, a son and a daughter. That was that, that <laughs> yeah. was like I, I kind of rang. I didn't, I didn't do it for that reason, but it's it sort of rang the bells for what the white church was was wanting and clamoring for when they said we need a new pastor. You know. So those things die hard. Um, we've been fortunate at Christ Church over the course of my tenure to have some to have really talented people who are racially and ethnically uh, diverse and um, and gender diverse. And it's been what an enriching um, thing for me personally and professionally. I've learned tremendous amount from having uh, diverse colleagues on the staff and who have given the, the church tremendous gifts. Well, anyway, coming back to your story, Violet, you were, so you started out at Abyssinian. And I think a, just a further word about Abyssinian is a historic African-American Baptist church in Harlem. It's had uh, many important leaders who actually had political careers as well. And um, so that that has been an important place. And you were there for quite a few years, right? How many years were you there? Just a few. 16 years. <laughs> 16. Okay. 16 years, yes. The and, better part of my ministry development, yes. And so you were, I, I want to reiterate the fact that you were a groundbreaker um, in that way it, at that historic church. Yes, I have the scars to prove it. Yep, I bet. <laughs> Trailblazers, right? I was thinking yeah. about John the Baptist. You, you, Look at the sacrifices made by the one who who goes before, the one who paves the way, suffers a tremendous amount of of um, at times uh, of the pain and and the wherewithal to continue. I think often is is shown by how he or she continues to stand on Did the you, other side. Can we dig in just a bit more uh, under the surface about your inner journey? Um, faith-wise and with the call. Can you say yes. a word deeper about that? So having worked in D.C. as a social worker, and primarily my population was HIV and AIDS. That was my primary yes. uh, population. And my target population involved a lot of different, um, you know, people from different walks of life, but primarily at the time I heeded the call, I was not only working with HIV and AIDS, I was working with ex-offenders and those who were the recently released ex-offenders, but also those who had made it to minimum security working in the DC District of Columbia, um, District of Columbia Department of, um, i trying to remember what we call it now, but it was DC jail and the DC prison system. I was an outside vendor, meaning I was working with an organization providing services inside the prison, um, the prison system, the halfway houses, the minimum, medium security, and um, parolees. But I was a social worker in discharge planning, working primarily only with HIV and AIDS. And I began to be 
become so unsettled. And I was very involved in my church. I was a young adult leader. I co-chaired the young adult ministry. I was on the prison ministry. Can you imagine that? I work in the <laughs> penal system and yeah, I was on the prison ministry. I'm like, these two are clashing. Um, such a dichotomy there. But the point is I was having, even leaving, exiting Howard University's Master of Social Work program, I began to have this real dissonance, this inner turmoil. I was becoming increasingly frustrated and upset with God because I knew that I was doing my level best, doing all that I could muster up in my own energy and with my skills and training to help transform people's lives, help them rebuild and meeting them where they are and helping. I just didn't understand why God would bother me. Why? Like I'm doing enough already. And so ultimately it was, I was dressed for a watch night service and in the Baptist church, you go at 10 o'clock at midnight. I was going <laughs> to go out with friends to go dancing and to celebrate after worship. So I grew up, you always had to go to church first. And I was dressed, I remember the exact outfit, the heels I wore, everything. And I sat there and the minister preached such a powerful word that just, I mean, it was inscripting something new on my heart that I was a basket case. I began to become emotional to the point that I could not leave my pew when the service ended. I was still sitting there. And a couple of people, friends and, and pew mates and what have you, saw me and I was a wreck. I just could not get up. The sermon was preached and essentially I was convicted by the Holy Spirit because I had been running. And I'd been running because one, I was single um, in my mid twenties, didn't think that I could do anything more in a church than I'd already been doing as a youth leader. I was in the choir. I was doing all of these things. Why would God not leave me alone? And so ultimately that began my journey. I met with my pastors after that. And, and the assistant pastor, Dr. Christine Wiley said, oh, oh, well, we understand what's happening. You, you're experiencing a call. And they went on to say, we've seen this. And in fact, you were one of the names. Your name was one of the names. You were one of the people that came up on the roster of, um, what is it, nominations for the deacon board, for the diaconate. And I'm thinking, I'm a young person. I can't be a deacon. I, I'm not married and I'm not male. And so all of those things just begin to wreck my own kind of self imposed images of what church leadership should be. And so the call was actually something that I was running from all pretty much all of my uh, graduate school experience at Howard, at least the second year. So that by the time I finished, I was licensed, I was working. I just was unhappy. I had achieved everything I'd gone to DC to achieve. I'd had the masters of social work. I was licensed. I'm practicing in my chosen field. What else could I do? And so I continue to go back to this sense of this great sense of dis-ease and the dissonance that it left me feeling was I'm just, I was a little bereft. I didn't know what to make of it until they named it. And then once it was named and they began counseling with me and helping me to understand how to process what I was experiencing, then I began to feel, okay, I think I can conquer this. I think I can. I think was it I like um, um, you've described an inner experience um, and that 
you it dawned on you that retrospectively looking back to this to your then present moment you had been running from something and it kind of dawned on you in, in a in a fresh brand new way is that correct something correct had been, okay i had run 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 until i i ran until i couldn't run any longer and i've been running so i think for so long that i didn't realize leaving my comfortable life and practicing even at the baccalaureate level in D.C., in, in Charlotte, North Carolina, leaving the Carolinas to go to D.C. to graduate school was the beginning of following God and having faith in a greater way to answer the call. So I had been running. I just didn't know I'd been running. I didn't right, know what right, I didn't right. know how to name it. And so when I entered seminary, again, I still had a strong aversion to call language. I just didn't feel that that met the standard that I'd witnessed before yeah. me. It's funny. I know that I've had spiritual events that work the same way. It wasn't so much about the call, but other matters where I wake up to a, a reality that, that interprets what has already been going on, right. you know, and then the awareness comes, something like that. Right. We think of it as spiritual re revelation all of a sudden like this. But in fact, most of the time, right. something's been bubbling all yes. along. Right? Yes, yeah. it's been building up. That's right. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. So we've got you situated Abyssinian, and we've heard about this rich call narrative. and um, But somewhere along the line, you got married, and you wound up in a really <laughs> rather interesting situation, didn't you? <laughs> Tell us yeah, about that. Interesting. <laughs> Tell us about that. I have to stay. Let me begin by saying, <laughs> yes, after having been single in ministry for so long, the one thing that I was so afraid of answering the call as a young woman in my mid to late 20s at the time I finished seminary thinking, I'm never going to get married. I won't have these other opportunities in my life afforded me. Why in the world would God do this to me? And then all of a sudden I wasn't even thinking and I met someone and I thought, God's got wild sense of humor because <laughs> I entered my doctoral program saying, I just, I would just like to be at least in a relationship that has a future when this ends, to share in this joy and celebration of all this hard work with someone, not knowing I was in my last uh, term of coursework at Fordham University. At that point, I had already completed all of the coursework for a PhD in clinical social work at NYU. So to get to this point, change disciplines, change institutions, all of this, I just thought, okay, it's not going to happen for me anytime soon. Let me just keep, um, you know, preparing myself for what my life's journey will look like and how the call will evolve down the road. And I meet this guy and I'm sitting at one point in one of my classes at Fordham and it was a distance relationship. So he meets me and we had to travel to see one another. And I'm thinking, gosh, this really must be it. I'm about to finish this up. And somebody finally emerged onto the scene. Maybe that's why I had to leave the other institution to begin with, which was a crazy thought. But yes, I um, have to say, going back, thankfully, being reared in the South and in South Carolina in particular, I wasn't reared Southern Baptist. So I've always had a progressive streak to my to my theology, which which is why I knew going into my church in DC was a blessing from the Lord because I was so stifled and felt oppressed by so many expressions of 
yeah. what what Baptistification, as one scholar would write, um, looked like. But this Baptist sense of conservatism that I couldn't abide with and buy, especially in my experience with um, HIV and AIDS and all that I'd done in that field. It's like things are clashing. These things should be, I think, holding one another up. And so as it would go along, Union helped, DC helped to open me up to the theological discourse that will later come and offer the tools to, to use and parse out my understanding of my faith through seminary. And I meet this guy who was an Episcopal priest. And I'm thinking, do was I she even already know? Or, was she already he was ordained? Already ordained. I'm okay. like, do I even know any Black Episcopalians? Was the question <laughs> I had. I was like, that was an anomaly. Yeah, when yeah I grew that's up. Right, right. So he, at the time, lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and was the canon pastor um, there. He was a kind of congregational pastor at the cathedral. St. John the Divine in Albuquerque. And I was assistant pastor of Abyssinian Baptist Church. So he didn't want a clergy person, least of all a Baptist minister (laughs) (laughs) with all his Episcopalian faith. And it was weird that (laughs) we would even find in the first week of our meeting common ground theologically because we had a number of differences that we had to work through and, and to discuss. Um, And so that was a different kind of experience that I never could have imagined, but only orchestrated by God. We met through mutual South Carolinians and our friends uh, were close friends or are close friends. And they conspired to introduce us thinking, well, he needs a wife. He wants to meet someone. (laughs) And uh, my friend thinking, oh, I think she'd love to have a husband. She's been doing this far too long by herself. And so it happened that we would meet and be from the same home state, which I never imagined possible. So he's from Charleston, South Carolina. At least that's a place when you say it, people know where it is. You can fly there and and have a good time visiting there. When I say where I'm from, Chiraw, South Carolina, where is that? (laughs) So it's very different, but we're three hours apart, driving distance and I never would have imagined meeting uh, a life partner and share the same home state. Just yeah. never, ever would have been fathomable. Well, he's a he's a great guy. I like Terrence a lot. And now we have the happy outcome that uh, we've been doing some programming with his current church. Tell us, say a word about his current church, because it's a historic place as well. Yes, it's one year, I think, younger than Abyssinia. So they are contemporaries. Abyssinian is the first... African-American Baptist church in the state of New York. And St. Philip's Episcopal Church is the oldest African-American Episcopal church in the state of New York and the second oldest in the nation. And so he now has the awesome responsibility and call to lead that historic edifice and the people of God there in Harlem. And it's an interesting opportunity in this moment, of course, experiencing COVID. But he has, it's amazing that he has now come to the place where I started out in ministry in New York, just four blocks away. And that's a very, again, funny side to how God moves. But his church 
has had a long history, of course, uh, in relationship to doing a lot of different, I think, ecumenical types of uh, collaborations as well as interfaith. And so mm. he's excited to be working with Christ Church on some things. And we rarely get to do anything together in ministry. And right. so it offers us a wonderful opportunity. We're actually planning to do uh, lead a Bible study uh, together starting in the new year um, when we start back up with Bible study. And so it's an exciting time that we get to have a moment here or there to bring congregations together from different backgrounds. Right. Right. So maybe we can shift some shift gears a little bit, unless you think there's something else we should really understand about you that would be um, useful for our listeners to know. Um, but what what uh, drives your passion right now over, you know, within the life of the church or within at this moment? What's what's firing the engines in Violet Lee? That's a great question. Uh, what fires the engines? I have always, again, had with the high regard for the church, had a love for just the church, the general community, not necessarily always the building, but the people. I just find mm-hmm. there such um, real, genuine energy and, and, and earnestness to live out the gospel. Some of the hardest work, I think, in this life is to really live what we what we teach and preach and read about in the, in the Bible. And I just find in God's house, people are really trying earnestly to do that. And I find that there's something rich in working alongside people, allowing um, them to share their life's journey with you. You know this, Steve, you have the privilege of impacting life uh, across a lifespan from birth to death. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's one of the things I think is so rich and awesome about social work. You can feel burned out dealing with one population and you could take the skills and the experiences and they're transferable to another population that again, would be in a different place on the lifespan. So you have this privilege of seeing a couple fall in love. You marry them. They have a home, you do a house blessing, or you you baptize the baby, bless the baby, or you go along and then you see how the journey continues and then there's a death and you're invited into that. And so I, I love that. I think it's been highly restrictive, of course, with COVID in our midst, but I, I love the richness of the human spirit and the community. And I love that at least in Christ Church, unlike so many other places of worship, we are making every effort to be inclusive, to really living out what Dr. King would call the beloved community, really trying to live into that. And I think that's the hard part of the gospel. So that that gives me that gives me real encouragement. I also find that almost any and everything can be a teachable moment. So I get excited about, I mean, I never wanted to be a teacher. I was in college, like I would never want to do that. And then I married a former school teacher. But I get a I get a uh, I get a doctorate in religious education, no less. And why is that? I love the opportunities that are that are constantly availed to us to teach things that are of the faith or related to the faith, or help people unpack their lives, and then you know, not so not always deconstructing it for the sake of just deconstructing it, but reconstructing something new something meaningful and something more useful and richer. Yeah. I've always, I've always felt that um, 
gosh, every every engagement, whether it's a committee meeting or what whatever it is that's that's related to the church, is an opportunity for talking about things that really matter to people. Right. Uh, I I just I just can't uh, stop doing that. <laughs> you know, one of the aspects of my own call was the fact that I just needed to talk about stuff that actually mattered as opposed to, right. you know, filler. You know what I mean? And we are privileged, are we not, to actually address things that really matter to That's people. That's right. And every, even a, even a boring committee meeting can, <laughs> in, a, in an odd way, give you an opportunity to address and push the conversation in a manner that's actually um, deepening and opens up new ways of thinking and right. feeling about stuff. And I think that's how it happens. At times, it could be something you've read, some theoretical knowledge. But mm -hmm. I think it's the relationship. I think it's yeah. the power of the human relationship and that sense of what you would talk about often in the past, Steve, is connectivity. It's that chance right. to connect with people spirit to spirit that allows us to really grow. And we're opening our eyes to something new. Even when we didn't always ask for it, God presents an opportunity for something new and rich and, and meaningful to happen. And I just, I love that about church work. I love that about the church. I love that about the faith when we are seeking to grow and learn and live out the gospel. Now, some people think they got it all together. You're you kidding. Know. They're the people I, I call the super saved. They, they've got it all together. <laughs> well, they the can't learn. Saved. They <laughs> can't grow. They've done it all. It's yeah. already, you know, they're on their way to heaven in a handbasket. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's the point where we are grounded in our faith. In a way, in a way that allows us to know that every human connection, there's a chance to learn something. Something meaningful can happen. Something transpires that we cannot even perceive of. And I think that's what the gospel writes about often that we miss when we when we discount people, when we, you know, when we uh, move beyond and say they're they're not worth our time. We may be missing out on something very important and central to what we need to learn from but also oh, how absolutely. we can be helpful. So I just think that's a part of our being useful, right? For the sake of yeah. humanity's usefulness to the other. How do we love each other in a way that is sincere and genuine and really at the heart of the gospel is the human relationship. Say a word about your take on how the church um, at this moment in time needs to evolve vis-a-vis uh, -vis matters of justice and and related issues. And of course, that includes notions of inclusion and race and white supremacy and gender issues and sexuality issues and, um, and the balance, the dance between helping people spiritually and then also helping them Christian vocationally, that is addressing the things that need addressing that's right in front of us. I mean, there's, there are a couple of different ways we could take this thread, but I'm, what comes up for you? I appreciate the question because I often feel like I'm living with this perpetual sense of rage. Like I'm constantly feeling there's a real, a to my identity that is so pervasive and it should not be this way. And 
the 21st century in 2020. We, we should have overcome already, right? We've been singing, we shall overcome for so long, and yet we have not overcome. And we have these reminders that there's still plenty of good work to do for the cause of Christ. And I really am often trying to manage my own expectations because I would tend to think having witnessed what we have this year living through a pandemic and the social and racial unrest that we would have seen more tables overturned. I would have thought we would have met that moment when Jesus and his righteous indignation turns over the tables and throws the, um, you know, throws the thieves out. Just, just the, the sailing of our, I don't know, our identity wholesale in the faith that we are all alike is, of course, ridiculous. But I, I'm frustrated because I saw in the spirit of my own grandparents and and even my elders, those before them, how racial discrimination hurt and, and it lasted and the PTSD that they suffered, that cultural memory that we still have and live with as a, as a Black woman. It's sad. Um, at one point, seeing my grandparents and their, their explanations and their pain and my parents even, it was one thing when I was a young girl and then a young adult and then single. It's different now being a parent and being married to um, a black man, having conversations around racial injustice that persists. When we look at, for many of us in ministry, especially from my upbringing, Dr. King's example, because he was a black Baptist minister, highly esteemed now in retrospect, but was even challenged by his own at the time he was fighting for racial justice and equality. It just seems to be a bit uh, more work that we have to do. But we have to recognize, I think the heart of it comes from this understanding that the nation has not lived into the truth of you know, racial disparity in our country in a sense that we have not admitted to uh, ourselves in this country that this racial um, experience has been a great part of the American experience, experiment from the beginning, that we've been a part of the fabric. And it starts not just with, with Black people having been enslaved, but even the native, the native dwellers sure. oh, yeah. who were here. And so until, and but they even, and there are a lot of problems with this, and so it could be easily challenged, but even having recognized the injustices toward them, having land and other benefits that have helped them at certain moments in time, but I think on a mass scale, you know, we've done poorly by them ultimately. But this sense of conquest and having enslaved Black people and then living through, certainly in my lifetime, even the memories of the stories, that oral tradition that continues of how, um, again, sharecropping and Jim and Jane Crowism has looked and in the South left so many scars. I just think we have not been honest with ourselves. And it's been terribly distressing 
um, even before President Barack Obama's presidency, when people thought at the end of that, you know, at the beginning of that presidency, that we entered this post-racial society, that we had finally arrived. And then now we say, no, we, we haven't. We have more work to do. I think the church, one of the things for me right now, um, back to your previous question that keeps my engines going, is this conversation on race that we're having at Christ Church. Mm-hmm. And knowing that we started this before, again, George Floyd's murder in May, uh, on May 25th. But we started this October even, a year ago. And Mm -hmm. and the richness of our dialogues, the different um, novelists, essayists, theologians, the different authors we've been reading and discussing raised from their particular writings has been very useful, I think, in this small group setting, Mm. joining with... St. Philip's Episcopal Church now has only enhanced that dialogue again because you have a church that's a predominantly white church now in conversation with a predominantly black church. But the predominantly white church has another church um, connected with its uh, identity now that's largely Latinx church, you know. And so we have so many bridges Mm. that we are able to try and cross that I find it's a small step but I think it's the right step toward what churches should be doing to invite and encourage honest dialogue, transparency. We can't make up for all that has happened, but we can deal with where we are now squarely, right? And experience from each other what race really means, what it means to us. We've had members in Christ Church who are senior members, I mean, advanced aged um, members who have said, I never read Zora Neale Hurston. I never mm-hmm. read James Baldwin. Mm-hmm. I've never been introduced to their work. And I feel like I'm learning something new for the first time. And why didn't I have this chance before reaching age 70 or, you know, or 80 or whatever the age is. Since you brought up that conversation, we're the next one is coming up when? It is December 15th, Alice Walker's The Color Purple is yep, the novel like, we're reading. Now a classic. So yes. uh, I just wanted to get that little advertisement. Thank you. <laughs> Nobel Peace Prize winning novel. Yes. You know, Violet, I, I have felt that um, I've been peeling the onion on this for most of my life. And um, in the earlier days, in my earlier days, um, I think I was less conscious, but I be, as I've gotten older, I've become increasingly conscious. And I think that so much of the work for all of us is to just become increasingly conscious. And it is a work because it doesn't necessarily come easy. People don't like to change their minds about things they already think and know and believe, and especially on the matter of race uh oh my it's a it's a long haul and there's a long journey still ahead of us but i feel privileged to be able to be participant in our small ways in new york city in the manner that we're addressing it um i feel quite proud of the fact that christ church uh with its park avenue address doesn't look park avenue for the most part on a sunday morning and um you know i've often wondered about this um I think it's true that people walk into a space and they sense right off whether they fit in or not, you know? And um, 
and let's face it, most of us tend to want to fit in with people who look and act just like us. So, so there's a kind of an interesting thing that happens for people when they come to Christ Church and, and come to discover the breadth of what we're attempting. They have to choose it. You know, they have to choose it. That's why, yeah, some religious education scholars would say that they, they challenge and there's a debate that's, I mean, long since been argued that we can't call our churches um, a family. We say Christ Church yeah. family because yeah. in the biological sense, we don't get to choose our families. Right. But in the Christian community, when we seek to join up in a church and we yoke ourselves with this particular group of followers, right, of the way of Christ for us, we are choosing that relationship. We are choosing that kinship and it's spiritual in nature. And yet there is this sense that there is a dichotomy because at least in the Pauline letters, we see clearly, you know, my brother and my sister, this and that. And so we wanted to embrace that. So there's this constant argument and debate about family and that familial language that we use, we've adapted from the Bible. And yet our biological families, some of us have no real connection with or yes. who's been abused yeah. or yes. abandoned yes. in some way, neglected. You know, you know when I was <clears throat> in my first flight of therapy, <laughs> this was a lot of years ago, but in my first flight, um, and of course, when you're, when you're kind of really unpacking stuff, you're dealing a lot of family-based issues right. and relationships and so on. Um, but I remember the... <laughs> The psychiatrist, I was seeing a psychiatrist, but it was talk therapy. But um, I remember he leaned back in his chair. He, it, this is now a cliche in a way, but I, but I had never thought it before. He leaned back in his chair and he took a long drag on a cigarette. And then he blew it out and he said, you know, Steve, um, one day we're born into a family. And then we spend the rest of our lives finding our family. <laughs> and, I, and I, you know, that was a liberating comment because it didn't mean I was, I had to stiff arm my biological family. It meant that the concept was a much bigger thing and it had theological and spiritual implications <laughs> about what it means to be connected. And I've always hung on to that. And I've actually, um, gained a lot of, I return to it every once in a while just to remind myself. That's and I right. like to remind other people that the fact is we spend out our lives redefining what family actually means. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, and, you know, from my personal standpoint, I've always felt, what? A, why wouldn't I want to see the world in terms of my family? You know, why wouldn't I want that? And um, there's a great gift in that, and it's mm -hmm. and it cuts across spiritual, emotional, you know, all of it. It's That's it's right. a big it's a big deal. That's and we right. Get to, yeah. And we get to work that. Yes, know? we do. And that's what, in some ways, King talked about and Howard Thurman and others. If you see me as family or in Christ Church, if we talk about loving neighbor, if you read the gospel and you see how we care for family and we ought to care for neighbor. It's, it's inscribed there. If you do that, how can you mistreat me? How can you dishonor me? How can you malign me and my identity and my presence? How do you justify that? 
And so if you can look at yourself squarely and know who you are in your family and the various roles you may play with your nuclear family or, you know, other kinship models and relationships you may have, then you, you can really live to really treat people equitably. You can yes. have a lot more, um, I think, calmness about some of these situations when they're enraging for others and catastrophic. You, you have a different approach to that. Right. And so that right. familial domain is a very critical one for relating, for relatedness in church even. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know we're coming up um, probably towards our end time. Uh, Brandon, is there a thought that's popped into your head that you're dying to express <laughs> or not? I'm, yeah, I think the the one that I, you know, that I, I connected with you immediately on what you know we come from this baptist background different baptist backgrounds but we share that we share the fact that we're southern and we share the fact that we're into politics so those were kind of like the areas that i wanted to hit we kind of hit all of those so i felt good about it so let me just say because brandon knows this i i would say if there was a closing word one of the things that has been challenging in um, this particular spiritual community for me in these moments, especially over the last um, several years, I've worked in spaces where there's been a lot of diversity and I've always appreciated that. But when it comes to matters of faith, I can't separate and compartmentalize my faith and my belief system is not on hold and on a shelf. It's a part of who I am. And in that sense, it brings out the best of, I think, the West African heritage in me, right? I am because we are, we are because I am. And that sense of that Ubuntu theology, I just can't right. see separating that and saying, oh, well, we can't talk politics. I can't be political. Like <laughs> I am political because it is a part of my, my nature and how I'm wired, but also having the black church experience throughout my entire life in some way, shape or form. There was a time in seminary, I thought I would break from that or at least a black Baptist church. And I would go on to look in other spaces for living out my call because I didn't think I'd be received being a woman. So that's some of the background there. But I I had said to Brandon, I think in a staff meeting once or others were present as well, that the black church exists because it's had to because of the racial discrimination. And so ergo, we are political, have been at our nature political because we've had to fight and organize um, for equality, for the sake of being identified as a just and and um, and and as you know, as one created in God's image, as anyone else, and so not having had the sense of a dominant voice in the culture, in a larger sense, for American um, society, societal purposes, it has been the fight for equality and a safe sense of worship space that the black church existed. And so my former pastor would say the black church exists not because it wants to, but because it's had to exist because we've had to, because in other spaces and other times we were relegated to the hinder parts, right. And to the balconies to worship. And so we created our own houses (laughs) of worship. And so that in and of itself is political, but in, in summing this all up, I say everything about, Jesus, the one whom we seek to serve and follow his teachings, everything about him was political. 
And when he, he was born, it was political, right? You look back at the stories now for Advent. But when he read that scroll and he stood and said, you know, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, that was political. Mm-hmm. So when people try to separate that out, I, that doesn't resonate well with me because I see beyond the veil. And there's just so much more to who we are. Well, I think maybe you've heard me say, and I think maybe I've said it in one of these podcasts, that <clears throat> as I grew up, I, I realized when I was a, at the time I was a teenager, I realized, because I had grown up in white church, of course, and in white church, when I was growing up, you didn't talk politics. In fact, that was always said, we don't talk <laughs> politics in church. And it dawned on me at the time, because this was now... Um, the, the, the golden era, if we can call it that, of the civil rights movement as it was blossoming into view with King at the forefront of it, it was eminently obvious that the mess, the implicit message of no politics in church mm. was, was racist. Because yeah. if you started dealing with politics, right. you'd wind up having to confront what does it mean to love my other family members in the extended family? What does that even mean? What does that look like? How do I do that? How do I treat them equally with dignity and so on? Now, most of that knowledge wasn't explicit. It was an implicit bias. It wasn't Mm. an explicit. I'm sure it was in some arenas, but not in my arenas. It wasn't explicit, but it was profoundly implicit. Yeah. so we're in a day and age. I think one of the things that has happened um, in this time frame, interestingly, is that in some places that veneer has been ripped off. That's right. And people are now understanding, maybe for the first time, gosh, if I'm a follower after the way of Jesus, there actually is something to be done about racism. You know, I think that's happening for some people for the first time. Yeah. And this necessary work. I mean, there, oh, that is in and of itself yeah, tells you about implicit bias. It, biases are there. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. having to deal with them squarely, confronting that and the challenges that brings to one's life and sense of self can be disorienting. Yes. But it's yes, necessary indeed. work and it helps to grow us in different ways to do even greater works. I'll put it that way. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Well, this has been a great conversation, Thank you. Uh, Violet. I really appreciate it, and I know our listeners will appreciate it. And there's, we've opened up um, some avenues of future conversation, no doubt. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Glad to be sharing this work with you.